Well, good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see all of you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you to Zoe Community Church. Hopefully you're having a good weekend and enjoying the weather. Is the mic okay? Yeah, kind of okay. I've been having a lot of trouble with mics lately, if you've been around. That's kind of the uh, series beneath the series a little bit. Um, but what we're actually going through is the book of 1 Samuel. So if you could open up your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 11. And we're going through all of 1 Samuel, and then we're going to go through all of 2 Samuel. That's our plan. It's going to take us to the end of 2022, 20, I think. Um, but we're calling this first half of the series through 1 Samuel. We're calling it After God's Own Heart. And you'll see why toward the middle of the book we're getting there when God rejects King Saul and he chooses King David to be his new king because David is a man after God's own heart. Now, we made a bit of progress in the book already. If you're new, um, if you haven't been here with us, we started with Samuel's origin story. That's how the book opens. It starts with his mother and father, how Samuel, this brand new prophet, one of the greatest prophets in all of Israel's history, is chosen by God to lead God's people in a new spiritual direction. It ends up culminating with King David. But so far, we've seen him grow up. We've seen Eli, the old high priest, die and, and his ministry go away. We've seen Israel go through defeat and victory, sinful hard-heartedness on the one hand, but also revival. We've seen good times with Israel and, and victory over their enemies and God's deliverance. And most recently, we've seen Israel ask for a king, which is bad. Right? They want a king to be like the other nations. God views it as a rejection of him. But God still gives them a king by his grace. He gives, uh, gives them a man named Saul. Saul, son of Kish, Saul of Benjamin, the tallest guy in all of Israel. He looks the part. Now, the thing is, though the story is about prophets and kings and priests so far, really uh, people who are unlike us, they lived in an ancient land, far from us in time and in distance, hopefully by now even though all of those things are true, we've seen that there is so much for us in these pages, in these stories. As the Apostle Paul said, these things were written not just for them, but for our instruction as the people of God, as Christians, that we might learn by their lives. Samuel was a prophet, Saul was a king. But when you get down to the heart of it, to the root of it, what we see is that they were just guys. They were just human beings. They were men with a nature like ours. And they went through things that are not unlike what we go through. Maybe not in uh, detail, but in kind. They had the same God. They were called to the same obedience and the same worship. And so we come to a text, 1 Samuel 11, where we see Saul win a major military victory. It seems interesting maybe even inspiring, but also distant at first read. I'm going to read the whole thing for us, and you'll see none of us are going to fight the Ammonites anytime soon. But understand, even as we read it, as we approach it, that this isn't just going to be the story of a battle. This is a story of a man and a story of God, the same God who is here with us right now. So let's read the text. We're going to read... Verses 1 through 15, okay, so it's going to be the whole chapter, but it's not as long as some of the things we've done in the past. 1 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh Gilead said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. 
He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah uh, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, uh, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoice greatly. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon and we ask for your grace. God, you have written your word out for us. You have condescended yourself to speak to us. And God, we hear it. We read it. We come to church every Sunday and we sit under it. But God, you know our hearts. Uh, you know that some of us in this room have heard the Bible a million times, and yet it hasn't really penetrated deep beneath the surface. You know that some of us are far from you right now, that we haven't been living for you at all. We haven't even been thinking about you at all this week. You know that some of us, God, are needy, that we're struggling, that even though we want to live for you, it's been hard. You know some of us have been just caught up in sin and transgression and struggle. You know, some of us are here and we've never known you. But God, we know that your word speaks to all of us. So God, I pray that you would speak to us, God, and I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts that we might receive what your word has to say. And God, I pray that you would open up our ears and open up our eyes to receive spiritual things, to see and to hear in a way that will change us, transform us, and move us. And God, we ask that your spirit would do it because we know that we don't have the strength on our own to do it. God, we look to you. We ask for your help. And we're thankful that we have this word, God, and I, I believe that this word is something that we all need. So God, I pray that you would use it in our lives, in my life. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What is it about certain people that causes them to have a big impact? Like, why do some people get used more powerfully? Why do some people have more influence? Why do some people change other people's lives? Why do some people make a difference when most of us aren't that? Years ago, I heard a pastor talk about how this missionary came to share at his church. Yeah, the missionary was stationed, I guess, in Papua New Guinea, all the way across, you know, the other side of the world, but he had come back stateside for furlough or something, and he was sharing at this big church, uh, and the pastor was just listening as he shared about his ministry and everything, and, and he was sharing and talking about the work they were doing, trying to reach unreached people groups and stuff like that. And then he said, the reason why I became a missionary in the first place is because of my old youth pastor, this guy named Vaughn. Right. He ministered to me, he reached out to me, uh, and he really uh, inspired me to go and share the gospel with my life. So the pastor was like, okay, cool sharing, thanks for coming. Uh, but the next week, someone at their church was sharing about a ministry opportunity, okay? Uh, someone who goes to that church, but they were involved in this ministry to, to reach the homeless uh, nearby. And that woman, she just said, you know, the reason why I got into this ministry in the first place, why I felt this burden on my heart was because of uh, my old youth pastor at my old church, this guy named Vaughn, right? He really invested in me and he inspired me to kind of do something with my life. So the pastor was like, is this the same Vaughn? 
Like, that's weird. Like, who is Vaughn? So the next week, right, he's talking to this guy in his church, one of the leaders named Dan. He didn't talk about Vaughn. Um, but they were talking, and he was like, hey, did you uh, notice that the past two weeks, two different people, totally different ministries, but people that we really look up to who give their lives for the gospel, they can both trace kind of the inspiration for that to Vaughn, right? That guy, Vaughn. Who is Vaughn, right? And the guy was like, oh, yeah, I know Vaughn. He's like, oh, you know Vaughn? He's a real person? And he's like, yeah, Vaughn was actually my old youth pastor too, something like that. And he said, Vaughn is this guy that has inspired a lot of people, and he's made a big, big impact on my life as well. And the pastor was like, who is Vaughn? Right? I got to find out who this Vaughn is, the legend, right? the man in the myth. Now, uh, just to keep your attention, I'll tell you who Vaughn is at the very end. Right? Real quick, does anyone here know Vaughn? I feel like everyone does, right? I don't know Vaughn. Actually, I am Vaughn. No, 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 I'm not Vaughn. I wish, I wish I was Vaughn. But here's a question, okay? I will keep that suspense. Who is Vaughn? Here's a question for you. Three people, right? An international missionary in New Guinea, right? A person involved in the local church, a faithful person who, who reaches out to the homeless on the weekends, and then a church leader, right? A guy who's involved in church, all said that Vaughn had impacted them greatly and kind of helped them get to the point that they were at. What could you, just based on that information, what could you surmise about Vaughn? Surmise, why am I using words like that? Well, what, what do you think about Vaughn, okay? What do you think, what do you think he's like? What do you think made him Vaughn, right? The Vaughn, who's helping people, who's inspiring people. Do you think, right, if he walked into a room, right, you'd be able to tell who he was? Like, he's just so charismatic, right? He's seven feet tall, right? He's got a holy glow where you got to put on sunglasses if you want to look at him. Like, what makes Vaughn, Vaughn? Would he instantly command attention? Would he be loud and boisterous? Would his gifts be evident to all? I know all of you are different people. Some of you guys, uh, a message about being used by God and being impactful this instantly resonates with you because that's your dream, right? That's what you're about. I know we got a few millennials here. That's like the stereotype of millennials. We want to be like meaningful, but then we can't because we're like always eating avocado toast and stuff like that. But I know some of you guys, you think about it, right? How can I make a big impact in this world? Hopefully for the kingdom of God, but how can I make a difference? And so right away, you resonate with talks like this, right? You're like, okay, tell me what I need to be. But then others of us were not that ambitious. And I was thinking about this. I was like, okay, I could talk about just being used by God, but I can't just assume that everyone even automatically wants that. I mean, maybe in an ideal world, you'd want to be used by God. You'd want to make a difference, but your life is really busy, right? You're exhausted. You're tired. I'm just surviving right now. Thanks. And I was thinking about how people like us might not think the lessons of this passage, you know, victory and warfare and the spirit of God rushing upon you and all these things, you might not think that they apply to us, they apply to you. But then I thought, okay, but everyone here at least, maybe if it's not about changing the world, at least you want to make a difference in at least one person's life, right? So let's make it small. I mean, don't you want to be a good parent if you are one, a good mother, a good father? Don't you want to be a good friend? Don't you want to be a good son or daughter, a good brother or sister, a good neighbor? You might not desire more influence, but hopefully if you're here in church, you want to be a good influence with the influence that you do have, right? And then maybe some of us on top of that haven't really been thinking about it at all. We're like, okay, I don't even have time to be like a good neighbor. Okay, I don't even know my neighbors. I'm just trying to get out of this hole that I'm in. I'm going through something right now. Life is really hard for me. Maybe later, maybe as I prayed, right, you're a Christian, but you've been far from God, honestly. Right? You haven't really been involved. You haven't been serving in who knows how long. You barely pray. You have no motivation to read the Bible. I mean, you feel like I got to take care of some stuff first, Maybe you're not even a Christian here, and maybe someone, someone invited you, and you're like, be used by God. I don't even know if God is real. Well, for both of you guys, what I would ask you is, do you at least want to change something for the better? Right? If you just think about it, 
right? Are there any, like, issues or problems? Is there one person that you know that kind of leans upon you where you would like to help at least in some way? Maybe you don't got a lot of time or money or energy, but something. I mean, even if you, like, zoom ahead, right, to the end of your life, what do you want to be remembered for? And it's not about even what people thought about you, but who you really were, right, over your life. Do you want your kids at the end of your life to be like, yeah, you know, dad, he was always distracted. He didn't really, I don't know him at all. I mean, he was fine, but, you know, he didn't really do anything for me. I'm not even that sad that he's gone. Or mom, she was always mad. She always felt like, you know, she, I always felt like I was annoying her when I went to her. And, you know, sad times, but I guess she did her best. Do you want your friends to be like, I, I didn't even know this guy well at all. He never had time for me. I mean, think about what kind of effect you're having right now and where that's going to lead if that doesn't change or it gets worse. Whoever you are right now, whatever kind of your approach is to this, maybe this book as a whole, but maybe this passage specifically will be the wake-up call that we need. Because Christians today remember Saul for his failures. Okay, if you don't know that much about Saul, I'll just tell you right now. When people think of King Saul, they don't think of a good king. They think about a guy who went nuts. Right? He, he descended into paranoia. Right? He was jealous of David. He kind of went crazy. He was attacking his own son. He held on to power too much. He disobeyed God. He wasn't a good king. He was the first king in Israel, and he was the worst king so far. It was easy to be the best, but he's remembered as the worst of one. And yet for all his failings, what we see early on in Saul's kingship is how God uses him. So there's something a little bit more complex to the Saul story. I mean, if you didn't know anything about Saul and I didn't tell you about it and you read this chapter, you'd be like, oh, Saul is great. Like Saul is doing things for God. And that's the thing. That's the thing. Saul is a warning. Like him, we can end up making a big impact in a negative way in the end, or like him, we can also make a good impact. And those impacts matter in people's lives. See, there's a warning, but there's also hope. God can use us to bless other people or to curse other people. So let's look at Saul. Let's look about how God can use us and maybe what we can learn about the impact that we have on other people We'll look at this text and uh, at this, we'll look at this passage under three headings, right? Nothing different than what we normally do. Um, we'll split it up into three parts. First, the problem. Second, the power. Third, the potential. First, the problem. The problem. See, it's not just about a generic, you know, like go and do big things for God. Okay, that's not even what this passage immediately presents itself as. It's about responding to the very real problems of life in this fallen world. Verse 1. Then Nahash, you see that? Then Nahash the Ammonite went up. He besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Okay, this seems to come out of nowhere, right? But problems usually from our perspective do. It'd be nice if we had like a month warning. Like in a month, you're going to get a phone call that's going to tell you. But we don't get that. We just get the phone call, and then everything changes. I mean, even if you think about the big things that happen in the world, right? I remember, like, I went to chemistry class. It was a normal day, beginning of the school year, and I sat down next to this guy. His name was Macon. Cool name. His middle name was Satan. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. But uh, Macon was a cool guy. He wasn't satanic at all. Um, it was actually Satan. That's what he told me. Um, but his middle name was Satan, and he was like, dude, did you hear about what happened in New York? And I was like, no. And he's like, dude, it's like, okay. And then the teacher started talking about it. And the date was September 11th, 2001. And every, everything changed that day. I had no idea. I just got up and I was living my life and everything changed. See, all of a sudden in verse one, everything changes. There's kind of a high. There was kind of a break from real life. They're, they're making Saul king and they're taking care of business and people are happy. But the world doesn't slow down for Israel's ceremonies, right? Nahash is here at the gate. Okay, the enemy is here at the gate. Lives are at stake. What's the context? As I said, Saul was anointed king in secret. He was announced as king in public. But if you remember last week, what did he do after that? He just went home. 
And it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to go home now. And some people went with him, like, thinking that he's going to do kingly stuff, but he's just, like, farming. The world didn't stop turning while Israel was waiting for its king. The Philistines are still out there. And we learn here that the Philistines weren't the only threat to Israel's existence. There's a guy named Nahash as well. And this is going to be the first of many tests for Saul. Saul went home. He didn't know what to expect. But now there is something. There is a pressing problem. And how he deals with it will show what kind of king that he is. Now, what kind of problem is Nahash of the Ammonites? If you look at the text, there's not a lot of details, right? He's just like Nahash. He's an Ammonite. We don't know anything about him. But later on, we find out that he's the king of the Ammonites. Later on in the book, it refers to Nahash king okay, of the Ammonites. And then kind of interesting, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered, you know, fairly recently, there was more information about Nahash. Okay, so it's more like historical stuff. It's not necessarily scripture. But what it says about him is that he had been a major problem in the ancient Near East. Kind of a twisted guy. Okay, he didn't just want to take over and kill people like normal warlords did. He liked to kind of have fun with the people that he took over. And he was a guy who gouged out the... So that's why he's talking about the eyes, right? He was a guy who was known for gouging out the eyes of people that he took over. Now, there's a practical reason for this, right? If you're right-handed, you hold your sword in your right hand. You got your shield in your left and if you have your right eye, you know, like you can't like see the same way. So it's a, it's a way to kind of make battle harder so they can't rise up against you. But really, he just liked to see people suffer, I think. I mean, he would just gouge out their eyes, make them hurt, make them walk around half blind. He thought it was funny. So even though we're not told it right here, understand that most likely in this part of the world, he was a known enemy. Okay, people knew who Nahash was. They didn't want to see his army coming down, you know, the path toward your city because you know that it's going to be bad. But now he's outside the walls of Jabesh Gilead and the people trying to make a treaty, right? They're already like, okay, we surrender, right? Let's just make a covenant. We'll serve you. We'll be your slaves. But Nahash, verse 2, the Ammonites said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So he's like, nah, I'm going to cut out your eyes. And the interesting thing is, in those days, when he talked about making a covenant, you would use this term cut, right? You'd say, let's cut a covenant together, okay? So he's kind of wordplaying around with them a little bit. They're like, okay, let's cut a covenant. He says, okay, let's do it. I'll cut out your eye. That'll be our covenant. There's some dark humor here. There's no getting out of it. He doesn't want slaves. He doesn't want servants. He doesn't want anything except for their right eyes. He wants to bring disgrace upon all Israel. So they're kind of in a bind. They need someone to save them. That's the situation. And it's interesting. If you look at verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, do you see that? We will give ourselves up to you. And this connects it to the greater context because do you remember what happened after Saul was announced as king? A lot of people were like, cool, Saul seems good, he's tall, but a few worthless fellows, right, were like, how can this guy ever save us? They don't view him as a guy capable of deliverance. Now there's a test. Can he actually save? Can he actually deliver? So the situation is established, and while this problem might have been unexpected, it's not random. This is what kings are made of, and we're going to see what kind of king Saul is at least at first, See, for Saul, this is most definitely a test. It's more than that, but for him, it is a test, a trial by fire. What is he going to do? You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, the elders are like, give us seven days. We're going to ask everybody we know for help. And if no one helps us, then I guess, you know, you can take our eyes. And Nahash says, sure, cool, whatever. Go for it. He's not like, okay, no, you're not going to trick me with that. You're going to bring some warriors to come fight. He's not scared at all of anyone they could ever ask for help. He's like, okay, bring any of your, who cares, dude? Come on out. I want to bring disgrace on all of Israel. So they send the messengers out, verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, that's where Saul lived, Gibeah, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. They wept aloud. They cried. Now, a question. Have you ever wept, right? Have you ever cried because of someone else's problem? You know, you heard some bad news. You know, a friend, something happened to them. 
Have you ever cried because someone else was going through something? Maybe you're not a crier. Right? I'm not a crier either by nature, um, but I feel like certain like life events have kind of made me like softer, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know. Um, but being a pastor and being a parent definitely kind of came together to form this weird like soft spot in my heart or whatever. I think because being a parent, you have these little humans, right, that you're responsible for. Like all of a sudden, like you're kind of forced by necessity and by love, right, to take care of these people that aren't you. And then I think because you're a pastor, you just kind of get a window into people's lives and the problems that they have. And, and it's not just being a pastor, right? It's just ministry. Uh, if you've ever tried to really minister to someone, to, to try to help someone as a Christian, you know that sometimes you don't realize how bad it is until you get beneath the surface, right? Ministry is kind of like a submarine in that way, right? Like things might look kind of bad, but then once you get beneath the surface, you see it's really bad. Right? You're kind of in it now. All of a sudden, you're in the water. You see the real problems, the real pain, the real struggle, the real fear, the real sin. Now, there is a real problem here. We can just skip over it and just be like, oh, okay, you know, they're going to lose their right eyes. tough. I mean, imagine losing your own right eye. Imagine your best friend calls and is like, hey, this bully's going to gouge out my right eye. Something like that. How do you respond to these problems that you encounter in your life. And I mean that in a comprehensive way. It doesn't have to be like the craziest problem. It can be a small problem. It doesn't have to be a personal problem. It could just be something that you witness on the street. How do you deal? How do you face these problems? How do you respond to them? The problems of your friends or your neighbors or your family or your enemies or strangers. See, the people of Gibeah, if you actually kind of do a search of Gibeah and Benjamin. So Gibeah was kind of a small section of Benjamin, which was a small tribe. But if you go back to the book of Judges, you see that Benjamin actually had this like crazy thing happen. I, don't, I won't get into the details. Um, but they ended up marrying a lot of people from Jabesh Gilead. Okay? And there's a lot that goes into that story. But there's actually like a real connection here through marriage. Okay, there's some relationship here. So that's why they probably go to them in the first place. But even still, right, it's not like they were so close, right? If you're like third cousin once removed calls you and says you have a problem, you're probably not going to be crying naturally like, oh my gosh, you might even not know their name, to be honest. But you can tell that they are burdened by the problem that their kinsmen face. And I feel like that already says something they're weeping over the problem that their kinsmen are in. And Saul is about to appear. But first, before we look at Saul's reaction, just soak in the situation. Saul doesn't need to go looking for a way to make a difference. The people of Benjamin don't need to go looking for a way to make a difference. The problem comes right to their doorstep. They can't avoid it. So you can't divorce making an impact and making a difference from the very real problems of life. You can't do it. I don't think you can do a generic, like, go make an impact without actually deal, dealing with real problems. Right? You can, like, start, like, a nonprofit for something that no one deals with. It's not going to do anything. Now, the problem today, I think, kind of the meta problem, is that we know all the bad things that happen in the world, right, all the time because of the Internet, because of the connectivity. We know that there's an earthquake in South America, and then we know that there's, like, a coup in this country and then a terrorist attack in this other country. We know that there's a disease here. And they're so big, and they, they do matter, but it's like we can't do anything about it, and it desensitizes us to these crazy problems. And I'm not trying to get into, like, media and the problems with that. I'm not an expert on that at all. What I am trying to say is we can be so hijacked nowadays because we're so connected by all of the big problems out there that we can't do anything about, that we're in danger of not dealing with the actual problems that show up on our doorstep. Because there are some. There are always problems that show up in our lives. Don't let the problems out there, which are real, okay, don't give me, I don't want to minimize them, but don't let them minimize the problems that you can deal with? I mean, is there a conversation that only you can have? Right? You're the only parent, maybe with your wife or husband, but you guys are the only parents that your kids have. Is there a person who looks up to you specifically? 
Is there a coworker that has no friends but you? Are you the only person who knows God in your circle of childhood buddies? I mean, think about what God has brought to your own doorstep. That's where it starts. What does the Bible say? It says, be faithful with little, and then you will be entrusted with much. And maybe God will entrust you with much, but not if you don't start with the little things. You know, one of Jesus' most famous parables was the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a lot of layers, okay, to that story. Okay, I'm not going to, like, expound all of it. I don't even know if I could. But just generally, what happens in that story? Do you guys remember? This guy gets beat up, he gets robbed, and he gets left for dead on the side of the road. And a Samaritan comes, and he helps him out. Right? That's the basic gist of the story. But before the Samaritan guy comes, there are a couple things that happen. First, a priest walks by and he sees the guy on the ground and he goes on by. And then a Levite sees that guy on the ground and then he walks on by. Two people pass the injured man on the road and neither stop. And again, there are layers to this. There are, there's a religious layer, all these different things. But understand, regardless of whatever important business they had to attend to, whatever reasons that they had, God brought them and that injured man together. He made their paths cross, and they failed the test. And you see this throughout Scripture a lot of times, where there is something right in front of you, right in front of these people, and they failed the test. They don't act. They don't do the right thing. They run away. They don't believe what God said. So the question is, will Saul pass this test? There are people in need. He is the king. Now it's time for him to be the king. This leads to the second point, the power. So there is a problem. There's a situation. Second, where will he get the power to do what he needs to do? Will he get it from himself or somewhere else? Because they're going to need something. Okay, they're definitely going to need something. I said be faithful in little. Be faithful when it comes to what's right on your doorstep. But the thing is, sometimes what shows up on your doorstep is not a little thing. Am I right? Because sometimes the thing that shows up is like the hardest thing possible beyond anything that you've ever encountered in your life before. Someone is struggling so bad, you have no idea what to say or do. Nahash is a terror. His army is already assembled. He's at the gate. He's besieging the city. And the hope, the hope that they have, that they're placing their hope in, the person, for all intents and purposes thus far, is basically this local farm boy. Dude, if you look at this, verse 5, it's almost funny, dude. If you just think about it, verse 5, and now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Okay, just picture the scene. Okay, I bet you, you could kind of like trick yourself a little bit. You could play like different inspiring music and like have good camera angles where it like shows his like farm muscles or whatever. You're like, oh, this guy, he's like salt of the earth, right? He's like, you know, he's like humble, but he's like strong. You know, he's physical. He's faithful to his family. He's rugged, whatever. But really, okay, take away the music and the camera angles. This is just funny and sad, almost. Uh, he was crowned king. Long, they said, long live the king, literally. Then he goes home and he's like just working on the field, doing his farm stuff. And the people, if you just think, okay, these men of God, were stirred up in their hearts by God to follow Saul. They think that they're going to start a kingdom together, right? And they're following him wherever he goes. And he's like going home and they're like, oh, he's probably going to say goodbye to his dad. And he's going to start like building his palace or whatever. And then he just starts like working on the farm in the morning. He's like, hey, you want to help me like get the chickens and stuff? And they're like, this is a king? I mean, it's fine. Yeah, he's tall. That's good. He's from a good family. But nothing about him, if you actually read the text, screams, great warrior. A brave guy. In fact, he was hiding in the luggage last time we saw him. He's not out fighting bears and lions. He's kind of a passive guy. So you can kind of understand why everyone cried. You know? It wasn't like, oh, wait, let's go get Saul. He's out in... No, they're like, oh, we're dead. Let's just cry, dude. There's nothing we can do. Nahash of the Ammonites is here. All we got is young McDonald on his farm. But it's not about that, right? It's not about that. The text sets us up this way on purpose. In fact, if we're looking at Saul, then we've already lost. Saul is, in a sense, a red herring because it's not about Saul at all. Verse 6, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. 
You see that? The Spirit of God rushed upon him. Where else in the Bible is this language used? There's only one place in the entire Bible. It's in the book of Judges. With one person. Not every judge, just one judge. Samson. Samson, whenever he got, like, super strong, it's when the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and then he was able to, like, defeat a thousand warriors with a jawbone and stuff. You know, the Philistines, you know, there was a movie that came out a few years ago about Samson, and I watched one of the scenes. It wasn't good, okay? But it was okay. You can check it out. It was okay. But Samson was, like, really buff. He looked like Conan the Barbarian. So you're like, okay, he does look strong. But the Philistines, remember, they were like, where does he get his strength from? That's why they needed Delilah, right? They're like, we have no idea how this guy is. So he didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, he didn't look like Dwayne the Rock Hartman, dude. Johnson, dude, right? That was on purpose, dude, I know. It wasn't a mistake. The mouth reveals the heart. He didn't look like he could be that strong. It wasn't the hair. Okay, the hair was the sign of his vow, but it was the Spirit of God rushing upon him. So the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. Okay, so you know something's about to go down, right? And it rushed upon him before, and he prophesied. Now it, it inflames him with anger. He gets angry. There's zeal in him for the first time. And the thing is, okay, if you pay attention, I'll, we're, we're going to look at the rest of the passage in a second. But if you're paying attention, this is the thing that makes the difference. Do you see what I'm saying? See, when we think about people, okay, let's, let's just zoom back for a second. When we think about people, people mightily used, right? Even like Samson, who I was just talking about right now, we picture them having these natural gifts that make them able to do what they did. But if you read the text, Samson was not like a buff guy necessarily at all. He was God. Saul was tall. Was he a good warrior? We have no idea. He's never fought as far as we know. He's been farming. But he's going to lead them to victory in battle as we just read. Why? It's not because of his gifting. And yet today, when we think about people who are powerfully used by God, what do we always think about? Gifting. Oh, you're a really good speaker. You should become a preacher. Why? You're a good talker. You can, go on, you can do anything else. I mean, the power is in the word. It's not in the preacher. It's in the preaching of the word, not the preacher of the word. Right? We understand that. We say that all the time. Oh, you're like a really good singer. You should sing at church. What about their heart? And I'm not saying you shouldn't. Okay, if you're a good singer, you can use those gifts for God. But we focus on the gifting. We focus on the gifting. I'm not that good at this, so therefore I can't do it. It's not about us. It's about God. What does Paul say, 2 Corinthians chapter 4? The surpassing power belongs to who? To God and not to us. We are jars of clay. If you look at the people God uses throughout Scripture, very few are super gifted. Gideon is a scaredy cat. Peter's an uneducated fisherman. And even the people who are super gifted, people hone in on their weaknesses. Paul was one of the most gifted men in all of, in all of the Bible. Dude, his learning, his understanding, his ability to write, all the languages he spoke, his training. And yeah, people are like, oh, he's not that good of a public speaker. Sorry. It's not just the gifting. So if you're thinking, okay, how can God use me? I don't know that much. I'm not that good with words. I'm not that tall. I'm kind of low energy. I don't play instruments. I don't have time in my schedule. How can I be of service in the kingdom? How can I make a difference? God can use you because God is God. And the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. You know, I know some of us out here do feel gifted, and maybe you are. I think some of you guys are gifted in different ways. I think we all have different gifts that we bring to the table, and I know a lot of us try to be modest. But we got to understand, even if we are gifted, even if we have, like, a passion for something, even if people have talked about how good we are at whatever, at the end of the day, the real, the real results are going to come from God working through you or else it's nothing in eternity. Saul is the tallest man in Israel. He's a natural leader. When they say, look at him, everyone's like, okay, yeah, good. It's a gift. Saul isn't a bum, okay? Saul does have a lot of things going for him. He has an it factor. And yet, when he shows up on the field of battle in a few chapters, he's the tallest guy by a head. Guess what? The Philistines have a taller guy. It's not about the gifting, dude. You can't ride that all the way. The Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. 
It's not natural abilities. It's not what we have. It's not who we are that makes you someone who can make an impact, who can make a difference, who God can use powerfully. It's just God. And God does use Saul right here. He's not filled with strength like Samson. He doesn't just get a donkey's jawbone and say, let's go. It's a righteous anger that he is filled with. It's a zeal. And really, he's been lacking this up till now. He hasn't had a fire within him. He's been really passive, not doing anything. But God lights that fire, and he takes a yoke of oxen, and he cuts them up, and he sends them all throughout Israel. And it reminds you of a scene in Judges. Uh, There's a crazy scene where uh, they send out, like, the body of this person all throughout Israel. But he sends out the body, cut-up body of these ox. Okay, to everyone, and he says, if you don't come out, I'm going to make all your oxen like this. And in certain ancient cultures, this is what you did. You said, come on out or else this is going to happen. It's a visceral call to action, show up or face the consequences. And what happens is, verse 7, God uses this zeal to galvanize the people of Israel. The dread of the Lord, it says, fell upon the people, and they show up as one man. This is the kind of leadership they wanted. This is the kind of leadership that Until this point, it seemed like Saul might not be able to do. But God helped him. God summoned them to fight for their kinsmen and under Saul. So they show up hundreds of thousands with confidence and full assurance of faith. They tell the men of Jabesh, tomorrow you will be saved. And the people of Jabesh are glad. They believe too. And they tell Nahash, okay, we'll give up tomorrow. Because they know that Saul is coming with the armies of Israel. In verse 11, it's almost anticlimactic. This is the scene that would take up like 20 minutes in the movie, right? The whole battle. It takes up one verse. They just basically split up into three groups and they win. That's all it says. They, they win, they defeat them, they kind of beat them up for like the whole morning and then there's not two people left together. It's anticlimactic. And the reason why is because in the actual flow of this text, the battle isn't the point at all. The outcome is a done deal because the Spirit of God is upon Saul. The battle isn't the point. So if the battle isn't the point, what is the point? What is the lesson? Well, remember when I talked about if God is for us, who can be against us? And I said, if God is for you. Okay, you got to make sure that God is on your side. They brought out the ark. They thought that God was going to help them. He didn't. But that is the truest statement. Okay, that is from the Word of God. Because if God is for you, then nothing can stop you. This passage isn't about how great Saul is, how gifted, what what a great strategist, what a warrior. It's about how great God is. And you could even take someone like Saul. And you can win a battle against Nahash, king of the Ammonites, feared in the ancient world. And you can win easily. There's no problem too great for God. In fact, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Keep your place in 1 Samuel. We'll go to Mark chapter 9. I want to show you something. Mark 9. This is the passage of the transfiguration. You guys remember that? Jesus took up Peter, James, and John to the mountain, and he revealed who he really was to them, his glory, his divinity. But after, they come back down the mountain, these four guys. And we'll pick up in verse 14. I want you to see this actually from the text. And I love the way Mark tells the stories. I love Matthew and Luke and John as well. But I love the way Mark specifically tells these stories. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. The other guys, right? And scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Okay, so the problem is a man brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus for help. Jesus is gone. Okay, Jesus isn't even there. The disciples are there. They had been given the ability to exercise demons. They tried, and they failed. They just couldn't do it. Verse 19. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
Hey, did you hear that? He's explaining the story, and he says, okay, if you can do anything, then help us. Okay, what kind of faith is that, right? If you can, if you can. Jesus heard what he said in verse 23, because he says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And just a side note, I love that. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, because in reality, this is how our faith often looks, isn't it? Right? We do have faith as Christians, but we also have doubt sometimes. There are times where our faith is tested and stretched beyond what we can handle. We want to believe, but it's not easy. The father does want to believe. He's honest, but he can't fully just give himself to it. So he says, help my unbelief, verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to, it, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So Jesus does what we expect him to do. He casts out a demon that no one else could, of course, because it's Jesus. He's the son of God. He's God the son. But verse 28 the story's not over. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, it's because I'm Jesus, you fools, right? Because you guys aren't. No. In verse 29, he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's a very weird thing to say, to me at least, almost anticlimactic. There's no special technique. It's just prayer. Now, for me, I don't know if, I don't want to put words in your mouth or thoughts in your mind, but for me, I've always thought that prayer was just kind of normal, right? That's what we do. You do it before meals. Any kid could pray. Any person could pray. You don't have to be especially gifted or special in the kingdom of God to pray. But then you read the Bible and you see these crazy things that the apostles are doing. They're casting out demons. They're exercising, right? They're, they're healing people. And I'm like, that is real power, right? They can do things that we can't, right? They're special, but did you hear Jesus? To the apostles, this kind of demon, this especially hard kind of demon, can't be cast out by anything but prayer. What does that mean? What is Jesus getting at? Well, Jesus is reminding them of something that we said a couple times already. Surpassing power belongs to God and not us, not them. Prayer can drive it out, not because my prayers are so great. He didn't say only by really good prayers. It can be driven out by prayer because God is the one who answers prayer. Prayer is asking God for help. When you are weak, he is strong. So the question is, if you want to be used by God, okay, the question is, do you pray? Do you pray? Do you lean upon the Lord? Do you find your strength in him? Do you pray for the problems that you see in the world around you? Do you pray for your, yourself, right? The problems that you deal with. Do you cast your cares upon him? Do you intercede for others? Do you present your requests to God as the Bible commands us? Do you believe, help our unbelief, do you believe that God can help you or help us or help this person or change the world? Do you pray? You know, personally, I've been more and more convicted of this lately because I know that my prayer life is weak. It's weak. You know, I feel like, you know, I have all these excuses. I'm just doing the work of the ministry, right? I got to do these things. I got to take care of these things. The sermon's not going to write itself, right? But prayer is where we take hold of the power of God. This is how he's made it available to us. And I remember a pastor, a church planner was sharing. He's older now. And he said when he first planted a church, he said, I used to walk around, sometimes whole days. I'd just walk around the neighborhood around my church, and I would just pray for the people in our church. i pray for the houses. i pray that people in the city would be saved. i pray that God would work. And some younger guy was like, okay, that's cool. Like, you know, that's inspiring, dude. But when did you have time to, like, actually do ministry, right? And he was like, what do you mean? That, actually, that is the work of the ministry, dude. And I was like, oh, shoot, good thing I didn't ask any questions. But that's true. We have this like bifurcation, right? It's like, okay, I'll pray, I'll pray if I have time, but I got to act. It is the work of the ministry. Can Zoe change the world? Probably not. Okay, let's just be real here. Okay, let's just look at ourselves and be honest. But God can. 
Could God use Zoe too? Absolutely. God can use anybody. He can speak through a donkey. Check out that passage. Norman knows, dude. We can do anything. Not because we can do anything. You see what I'm saying? But because God can do anything. If we lean upon the Spirit of God. I was reading one commentator, and he basically said, when the church leans upon worldly strategies, we can't do anything. It's when we lean upon the Lord that we can do anything. You don't need to be the most apologetic, genius person to share the gospel. You don't need to be the most gifted speaker to be the most impactful preacher. You don't need to be good with kids to make an impact on the children that you encounter, your own kids or the kids in children's ministry. You don't need anything but God. And Saul wins easily because he has God. And this leads to the third point quickly now, the potential. The potential. It's a good start. It's a good start. We'll give Saul that. The kingdom of Israel could not begin on a higher note. And this is exactly what the Lord's anointed is supposed to do. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Who are those guys again? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Kind of intense there. The people remember uh, these guys who doubted, and now they're riding high on the Saul train, and they want to execute these guys. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul says no, and the reason is what's key here. He says, because the Lord has worked salvation. That's a window into how he's thinking in these early days. It's God who did it, not me. Take the focus off of me, right? It's like you're like, okay, these guys didn't accept Saul. He said, forget that. Don't kill them. This isn't about what I've done. It's about the Lord. If only Saul could remember that. But keep going. Verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. There Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Okay, there's some difficulty in understanding what's going on here about renewing the kingdom. In a nutshell, there's two levels to this. Okay, one... Before, when they uh, announced Saul king, not everyone really accepted it, okay? Some people rejected it, but now everyone's fully on board. So they want to make Saul king together. They want to acknowledge his authority. But there's also a second level to this. Samuel is there. And part of this, we'll see in the next chapter, but part of this is remembering that actually God is the king of the kingdom. Coming back to him, there's another opportunity for that. But either way, in fact, both ways, you see that things are going really good. They're renewing the kingdom. Okay? They're unified under Saul. They're going back to God. This is a happily ever after moment if there is one in this book so far. You, can't, you can almost uh, not even imagine it going wrong after this. They're sacrificing. Samuel is there. They rejoice. They won. They did it. God came through. Saul recognizes that it was the Lord the whole time. There is so much potential here. And yet... I feel like we can't read this without at least acknowledging the context that this is the best it ever is under Saul. He's one of those guys where his rookie season is the best season. You think he's just going to get better and better. He never reaches this height again. In fact, in two chapters, he's already going to mess up fatally, basically. He'll never get here. And tragically, by the end, Saul will end up doing more harm than good. The people will suffer because of Saul. I mean, it points us to our need for the true Lord's anointed, for one, right, who came to deal with our enemies, sin and death. I mean, the enemy lived within Saul. The enemy was already inside the gate. He wasn't outside. Saul was a sinner. He was destined to fail, as all sinners are, in some point, in some way. That's why Jesus had to come. But also, if you understand, with Saul and all his potential, there's a lesson for us who would ever think about doing something for God because we have the same potential I mean it's a warning we can do great harm in people's lives maybe we can bless people too but just real talk some of us you know even in our lives right now we're causing damage to people in different ways we're leading them astray we're hurting them we're being a bad example Some of us are doing good things. There's a mixture of both, but there's potential. And maybe some of us, going back to the beginning, are on a bad path. You're living a destructive, kind of on a destructive path, self-destructive even. And you feel like, what's the point? I can't go back and fix things. I don't even know if God 
is real necessarily. Maybe you're just tired again, like I said. Go back to point one, and I hope that this is somewhat of a wake-up call for you. But go back to point one. What was it? It was the problem. Okay, people have problems. If you can think about it just like this, there was a real problem. We, we forget the men of Jabesh Gilead, the people of Jabesh, and we say, okay, Saul, this was a test, blah, blah, blah. It was. But remember that they actually faced right eye gouging, and Saul preserved their eyes. God used him to bless them, and Saul eventually fails the test. But the people of Gilead, if Saul had failed this first test, they would have suffered. And I want to show you something at the end of this book, 1 Samuel 31, and then we'll close. Because I don't know if we'll remember this by the time we actually get to 1 Samuel. But this book, the first half of the book of Samuel, it ends with Saul's death. Okay, Saul dies on the battlefield against the Philistines. And uh, it's, it's kind of a sad death. He doesn't get a proper burial necessarily. They cut off his head, the Philistines. They humiliate the body. They hang up his body because... You know, they don't like the Israelites. Saul was the king who had evaded them for so long. But look at verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Do you see that? Who took Saul's body? Who risked their lives to go into enemy territory just to recover an already dead body so that they could give Saul a proper burial? And why do you think they did this? It's the men of Jabesh Gilead because they remember what Saul did for them all the way back when in 1 Samuel 11. See, the thing is there are real problems out there. There are real needs. There are real people in your lives who can either be blessed or hurt by you. And you have the potential to help or to hurt, to stop or to walk on by. And even if in other ways you fail, Lord willing, you won't. But even if in other ways you fail, the one thing that you do today might make a huge difference in someone else's life. It's not just about passing or failing a test before God. That is part of it. But it's about being used by him to do what he wants to do in the world. We'll close here. So back to Vaughn. Who is Vaughn? That's what the pastor wanted to know. And Dan, his friend who knew Vaughn personally, said, yeah, Vaughn, so he's a pastor right now. He's out and about. He's a pastor in San Diego. And he said, I actually went with him to go down to Tijuana once to kind of do some missions work down there. And he said, it was the craziest thing. He said, we went down to Tijuana, and we're just walking down the street. And he said, all the kids recognize Vaughn, and they're all running to him. And he said, I felt like in that moment, I was like, dude, this must have been what it was like with Jesus. Let the children come to me. It was kind of a moment like that. They just recognized Vaughn, and he was, like, giving them food, and he was telling them about the gospel. It was crazy. And he was saying, like, the thing about Vaughn is that everywhere he went, he showed people this incredible love and kindness, and he was bold about Jesus, and that was it. Okay, nothing about, like, he's not, like, the most gifted guy. He's not famous. There's nothing about his appearance that attracts people to him. It's that Vaughn is like Jesus. See, the Spirit rushed upon Samson and made him strong. Remember that? The Spirit rushed upon Saul and made him zealous. What does the Bible say about the Spirit and us if you're a Christian? Not that the Spirit rushes upon you every once in a while. It says that the Spirit, the same Spirit of God, lives within you. He makes his home in your heart and he produces fruit in us to make us like Jesus. See, the point is, Vaughn isn't a a once-in-a-generation talent. Vaughn is simply a Christian who is walking by the Spirit. And what made him stand out was love and kindness. Just a couple of fruit. And that made all the difference. You and I, we know the fruit of the Spirit. James read it. You can look it up in Galatians chapter 5. You have the same spirit within you that Vaughn had, the same one that rushed upon Saul and Samson. So go and bear fruit. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be used by you, God, for your glory. 
God, we know that there are many problems and issues in this world. God, and we don't want to be arrogant. We don't think that we can solve everything. But by faith, God, we know that you can. And we know that it's, it's really a privilege for us to be a part of what you're doing in this world and in people's lives. So God, help us to view it that, that way, to view it as such. God, I pray for our church. I pray, God, that we would not desire to be great in the world's eyes. But I pray, God, that you would help us to just be faithful, to walk by the Spirit, to be like Christ. And God, we know what that can do. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.